1: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me recording this in my house in Brooklyn where I will be recording, I think forever. Um, But I'm not complaining. I'm delighted to talk to Hank Green. Sometimes I stumble over uh, either the the guest pronunciation of their name or or the best way to identify them. I think I got Hank Green, right? Yeah, you did that. And I'm gonna read from your Twitter bio because it's quite extensive. Okay. And that way I can't blame. That's a good call. That way if I'm wrong, you gotta blame somebody else. Yeah. Hank describes himself as a book writer, video maker, science communicator, small business lover, Period, co-creator of Crash Course, SciShow, Log Brothers, VidCon, there's a then there's a, a link that I won't pronounce. Um, I think of you as an OG YouTuber, one of the you and your brother yeah. being one of the original uh-huh. YouTube personalities who have then built a, a career. Yeah, starting on YouTube and, and and across many forms of media, um, like you mentioned, you created VidCon, which is, at least mm-hmm. used to be one of uh, uh, the best ways to get information. <laughs> about what was happening on the internet? Yeah, I haven't gone in a couple of years, so I can't. Uh, yeah, well, can't this year now, this year good.
3: This it, year, exists, uh, it exists. It uh, exists less uh, in its traditional form, as you might expect. That's what I imagine.
2: I want to yep. talk to you about all of that. You've also got a book coming out called "A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor." Um, which may or may not be up by the time you hear this. And Probably. I just wanted to say hello, cause I wanted to pick your brain about YouTube and the yeah. internet yeah. and podcasting and social sure. media. And we've never got to talk before. So now we are, yeah. hello.
3: It's so great to talk to you. You know, I found out about your podcast is my 70 year old father sent uh. it, texted me once and was like, you need to be listening to this podcast. He is one of the like preeminent experts of online video, but he only talks to us. It's an amazing resource.
2: <laughs> he's an expert on online video because he's followed you and your brother?
3: Yeah. Or independently, yeah, I mean, he he's, was, he's gone ahead. He has always been uh, obsessed with whatever we're into. And this is a great dad trait. It's just like the moment I show any level of interest in something, he is an expert in it. and uh, And that's just like, that's his vibe. And, you know, it, it has been extremely helpful over the years because he sees things coming that I don't see coming sometimes. You know, he has more experience being in the world than I do. And you know, has been through some, you know, several careers of his own, but he's just a sponge. And so he
2: sent me your podcast. And uh, that's how I found out about Peter Kafka. Thank you, Hank Green's father. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll I'll take the endorsement anywhere (laughs) I can get it. My my parents are also important uh, podcast listeners. Um, The best feedback I ever got from them was I happened to be visiting them and I just recorded an interview with Jason Kalkanis and they were listening to it Mm -hmm. and they literally couldn't believe that the other person that, they were, that their son was talking to was a real person. They, they, they <laughs> thought he might be a character of some sort. They were kind of right. Yeah, Hi, Jason, no, I could, I could see that being the case with Jason. In addition to the pandemic, one reason that I am not talking to you in person is that you are in Montana, in mm-hmm. Missoula. Mm-hmm. Can you explain sort of how, where, where do you want to start? Do you want to explain how you got into podcasting, how you got into YouTubing before YouTubing was a thing, or do you want to explain how you did it from Missoula?
3: Uh, I think that the second thing is probably a little more interesting. Uh, when we started making YouTube videos, my brother and I, I actually felt like we were kind of late to the game. It was 2007. There were lots of people who are sort of building their audiences um, and, you know, audiences of tens of thousands of people. And it seemed like a, that's a huge deal, frankly, for in that in that era of, you know, the only real way to be making media or to making video media had had previously been, you know, <laughs> Really, lots of gatekeepers. Yeah, television. Television uh, or documentary film or, you know, a couple, right. a couple of ways. But yeah. In
2: 2007, YouTube is owned by Google for, I think, a year. Yep. Um, it is primarily seen as a place to see cat on yeah, dog, or, or skateboard or videos and clips. Lazy Sunday. Yeah, yeah. And then there's an early group of people who are making stuff for YouTube, mostly because it seems fun. There's not They're not really building a no. business. And a, and a lot of those people who showed up early became sort of prominent just because they were there earlier. Yeah, yeah, and I think that like, the,
3: there's a lot of those people have, you know, have normal jobs now or, or work in media behind the scenes. Um, but, and, and, you know, there, there are several people who have sort of like maintained their, uh, that success in that format, but not very many, honestly. And like, it has required a lot of evolution and change over the years for for all of those people, because the platform has changed. (laughs) I
2: think it's fair to say really dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so you started out, you and your brother started out making videos together, you were remote, what's the? Yeah, so the, the, the concept of the first year
3: was like, we are not going to communicate with each other for the most part, in any way, except through these videos. And we didn't even know each other that well. Um, and and most of how we communicated with either was either like when we went home to visit our parents or we would be on AOL Instant Messenger or text messages. And we very rarely spoke to each other with our voices. And, you know, we, having a shared project with
2: a sibling is really great. Was the idea that you were putting these on YouTube, obviously the thought was, you would see them. And that would be a fun way to interact was the thought. And also 10 other people we know will see yeah, them. At what point we did you all, think this is expected, for an audience? We wanted there to be
3: an audience and we expected, and John had, he was already an author. And so he had an audience of like librarians and, and a couple of like, those was, it was a huge portion of our audience was librarians, which was lovely. They're lovely people. So we did have, uh, we did have that, uh, sort of built-in audience of John's existing fan base, but th- it wasn't like there were a lot of people like searching out their favorite author on YouTube at the time. Mm-hmm. So we had a little bit of that and he had a website that he was able to promote through and maybe a newsletter possibly, but most of it was, and this is true of most YouTubers, it was the 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 audience came from the sort of network effect of YouTube feeding audience to people and more people coming to YouTube and looking for more content. And that continues to be the dynamic of why people... Stick with YouTube. Uh, like the, the the number one reason is that that's where the audience is.
2: And so, how long in between Vlogbrother video one? Uh, how long did it take for you guys to go? Oh no, this might be an actual thing we could do for a living, a living, or at least in a professional way.
3: Yeah, not like as you know, less than a year before we were like, this is uh, this is like something that that is rewarding, and we want to continue doing. When it became a living was a gradual thing and it was like sort of a phase out of, of the ways that I'm making money and a phase in of the other ways that I'm making money. So it's not, it was not a clear cutoff, but I do look at my tax you're, you're returns that, from- you're, you're making a crossing X line for the people yes, who can't see the, this, <laughs> which is everyone. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I look at my tax returns from those days and I was not not raking it in. <laughs> and what was this kind of content that people were responding to and then how did that evolve? I mean- it's so like you go back and watch those old videos, and they're
3: so bad, you know. And I think that it's it's really uh, was a, a, a tremendous gift to be given so many years to kind of suck, and uh, and then to be able to leverage that into you know con- like when we had developed those skills into doing other things than just sort of the personality focused or uh, you know who am who am I. And like, what am I interested in today? Which Vlogbrothers has always been and continues to be, and I really like about it. But you know, I think that that is a harder way to make uh, make a go of it these days on YouTube, just because it's such a crowded landscape, and people you know already have a lot of affiliations with with those fo- with like you know uh, personality based creators, and, and don't, aren't like seeking out new ones that much. Um, and that allowed us to make stuff that was more format based. And kind of expecting that, one maybe we were going to get older and we would be less interested in personality-based content. We'd be less interested in sharing everything about our lives. Mm-hmm. And two, people would be less interested in us as forty-five-year-old like, men who like, yeah, we were like. And it was never like people were never following. We were never like the cute kids of YouTube. We were. I was twenty-seven when I started doing this, so it wasn't like people were following us because we were adorable uh, and they were going to grow out of that. But like our audience has gotten older and they get busy and they watch less YouTube because they have kids and they have jobs. And so like, that's com- we've experienced a ton of churn. When somebody stops you on the street, uh, the, uh, the most common thing they say is, oh, I used to watch you on YouTube. And like, that hurts me not at all. <laughs> like, oh, no, it doesn't? No, no, no like it, it. I completely understand that. And, you know, churn is totally normal. And, you know, I think that we make content for people who are in certain moments in their lives. And sometimes, and sometimes people, like, get really invested in the community and have been there since 2007 or 2010 and, and like, really stick around. And And I, I love that. And I love that we can be a place where they find identity and a place where they find community. But, like, I don't expect that of every person, you know? I don't think that everybody – many people listen to every episode of Recode Media either.
2: I have a v- – very specific fan base that will, I didn't realize it involved your father as well, but they will <laughs> cite, they will cite old stuff. They tend yeah. to go back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they don't listen to everything. Um, I did get, I went to some event and I introduced myself to someone in the hall and they, they took them a beat or two. And they said, oh, I listened to your podcast. And then there was another beat like, you don't look the way I imagined. Of course. That's... And I didn't know how to take that. <laughs> so I'm Did you think it I positive. would be taller? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it meant. I'm taking yeah. it though. Um, so so the man on the street uh, says, I used to watch you on YouTube. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, if we made a pie chart of your, your time and your income, what 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 are you spending most of your time on these days and what oh. makes the most money for you? Well, right now I'm spending
3: most of the time on book stuff because my book comes out in five days. So, uh you know, there's a lot of promo that goes along with that, a lot of work that goes along with that, and uh, I, I kind of like am really interested in how to market through the internet. So I'm kind of trying to come up with ideas for how to market that are separate from, and I intentionally keep separate from my publisher, because I don't mm-hmm. want them to have uh, thoughts about it that will make the idea less good, uh, but maybe more proper or. Less worrying for them for whatever reason, and I don't want to know. I don't want to. I don't want to know what okay, the lawyers listen, think by, about by, this idea. By the
2: time, <laughs> by the time people hear this, the book will have come out. So, yeah. what's the best idea you had that you kept from your publisher in terms of marketing? Sure.
3: Yeah. So, this is a thing that I as I've started making TikTok videos recently and growing a little audience there, and uh, and I'm making these uh, TikToks where I say something that someone said nice about the book, and then I just clobber my camera with the book. I just like whack it across the room and, or my phone, <laughs> I should say. And and uh, on TikTok, you can duet. And so you like, you say like, I'm gonna make content that's alongside this content. Yeah. And my plan is that I'm gonna ask TikTokers to, or the like people who make TikToks, whatever, uh, it, w- whether or not they like have big audiences or not, to duet that and act as if they are getting smacked in the face with the book. And, uh, and then I'm going to give away copies of the book to people who get, and I don't know if it's going to be like, like thresholds of likes or if it's just going to be like my favorite ones or whatever, but I just want to have, uh, it's just, I'm basically forcing people to watch me say nice things about the book in the form of enjoyable content where people get hit in the face. I was gonna
2: ask you about about TikTok uh, because I don't spend time on TikTok, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been told that you are spending time there uh, and also on Clubhouse, which I definitely not spending on time on because yeah. I'm not allowed in. <laughs> I'm curious as someone who was there at nearly the beginning of YouTube, yeah. sort of watching new platforms mm-hmm. grow and and how you think about how much time do you wanna invest in new platforms, what you like better or worse about them than existing ones. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so you are, you're an original YouTube guy. Does Are you bringing any of your your fans over to TikTok or do you have to start almost from scratch over there? Well, I don't have to start from
3: scratch over there at all. Um, so one of the things that I do for a living is, and the thing that I usually spend the most time on is, is our media company, Complexly, which focuses on educational content. And Complexly's biggest YouTube channel is called Crash Course. It teaches high school and college courses, and, um, it is designed to be used as a supplement for like when you are in school. And so like, for example, you can see that our traffic is much higher during the week, much lower. And unlike every YouTube channel, the vast majority of the views come in the, the months after the first month rather than the first month because people watch it because they need it, not because it's coming out. Mm-hmm. And so people know who I am on TikTok because I taught them biology or chemistry. And- You're the groovy science teacher. Yes, and I I love that vibe. And I just get to come onto TikTok and people, one of the main things that happens on my TikTok is people send me uh, sort of outlandish science stories that sound a little fake. And they're like, is this real or is this fake? And I get to tell them whether it's real or fake. And those videos sometimes do very well. Uh, and I've been doing this for a month, by the way. So I'm like not super, but like I have I have much more insight into TikTok than I once had, but you know, it's it's still quite new for me. And and so like that was enabled me to pretty quickly build up an audience. There's also lots of people who are who watch our YouTube videos, like Vlogbrothers. Let like those people also have TikTok. So mm-hmm. like they found me pretty quickly on the platform. TikTok's algorithm is extremely good at surfacing the stuff that you might find appealing, and so it was really effective at finding my audience for me. And in in a matter of a month, I think I have like. 450,000 followers or something.
2: Is there pattern recognition for you? Oh, I did this. This worked for me at YouTube. This will work for me on TikTok or they're entirely different, (sighs) entirely different medium.
3: Yeah, not really. And I I think that the, the, instead of looking at what I do on, it's actually much much more similar to the way I make jokes on Twitter than it is YouTube. And so what's much more informative is watching other people's TikToks and seeing what is succeeding and being inspired by that. That's the case with all platforms, right? Like y- the idea that you can come in and know how to make a YouTube video and then be like I'm going to make a TikTok now without like watching a lot of freaking TikTok mm-hmm. is a, is, you know, that's foolishness. So I watched a lot of content and I sort of like went down rabbit holes and tried to, you know, diversify, like not just sort of like take what the algorithm was giving me, but, you know, search around the platform using hashtags and stuff and understand the platform better that way. And, you know, also understand how I am imagined on that platform, which, and I, I love to take the science communicator rule. And I think it's important in this space that is not entirely, but obviously much more youth dominated, that I take a role that is sort of like familiar and not like familiar to them, but also not overly familiar with the audience. So it's really important to me that I don't like try to like be a youth among the youths or appear to want to like partake of their culture. You but, don't wanna be the Steve
2: Buscemi meme
3: slash gif. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't wanna hello fellow kids it. I also don't wanna like come across as creepy, which I think that that can do when you're a 40 year old person in a young person space and like make sure that I'm like, am setting myself up like, This is the role that I am taking. I am the teacher in this space and, and like, am happy to educate you. And I'm not happy to say fuck, too. Like, I'm happy to curse. I'm happy to, like, communicate in ways that are familiar and comfortable with you. But, like, I am, like, understanding that there
2: there is a gap here between like the kinds of like, and want to like maintain that gap. So do you think you stay on TikTok post-book and now that becomes a platform where you build something new or is this where you're going to dip in and out of this?
3: I don't know. I I, like, I've I've already experienced a little bit of waning enthusiasm with it. Uh, TikTok is really sticky and it makes it really easy to make content. It's really, it makes it really easy to watch content. It's funny, uh, the iPhone, uh, what is it like? screen time app that like tracks your screen usage, it classifies it not as social media, but as creativity. So like since (laughs) downloading TikTok, like my social media quote usage has gone way down, but my creativity usage has gone way up. And I'm like, wow, I don't know how you got into that category TikTok, but it does make me feel better about using the app. And it's true I do spend a lot of time like actually creating on the app because it has all of those built-in creative tools. But like really like what TikTok does amazingly well is like it, it's a very low barrier to creation and it's a very low barrier to, and also like failure doesn't matter. If I make a TikTok that, that like does badly, TikTok just hasn't shown it to people. Like it's a, it was bad, so they didn't show it to people. And so no one saw it. And so I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't ever feel, um, it hasn't re- that much, even though like I do catch some flack just because people are gonna
2: have negative opinions of me because I've been in the public eye for a while um, and what just, do you, what do you th- what do you think about clubhouse which is where you're also oh. I think I think uh, yeah, my my audience probably overindexes on Clubhouse users, but but most people <laughs> yes. know Clubhouse is maybe a, uh, an app they read about in the New York Times that got yeah. funded on pretty much a, mm-hmm. a, a minimum viable product, and it sort of was the hot chat yeah, app with of, like
3: two, with like two
2: employees, yeah, yeah, where people were begging to get into the mm-hmm. app, um, and it's a it's a chat app, right?
3: Yes, it is. It is a it's a chat app, but it does not have text. It is so it's not like it's not like Discord is a chat app. It's like a mm-hmm. chat, like the way we are chatting right now. Yeah. And I really love the human voice. I love podcasts. And I think that human voice carries a lot of nuance and uh, it allows for much more assumption of positive intent, which is something that we need more of on the internet these days. I have found it to be very helpful in a time when I can't maybe network in the traditional ways for, for networking. Like I have come out of it with great relations. Like I also run an e-commerce com- company, which I don't do very well because I have this all of this other stuff going on. And uh, I came out of that with some really great relationships in e-commerce that I think can help me in you know have running a company that is doing well, but I'm just not, like not paying enough attention to it. And so that network has been really helpful, um, hearing from voices that I wouldn't normally be hearing from. But, uh, you know, and, and sort of like knowing that there are potentially always interesting conversations going on there is really appealing. I found that the moment I turned off notifications for Clubhouse, though, I stopped thinking about Clubhouse. <laughs> so if, if like, my notifications are on and it's like, these two interesting people are having a conversation, I'm like, yeah, I would like to hear that. And mm-hmm. I listen to it. Um, And it's, like, something I can listen to like a podcast, but, like, participate in it. But the moment I turned notifications off, it was, like, out of my brain in a way that TikTok wasn't. Where TikTok sort of like continued to take up brain real estate and was like, would you like to make a thing? And I think that for me, that is about the fact that I was reaching new audience and that like I was watching the numbers go up, which as much as I like to think that I'm making content to achieve some ultimate goal, uh, I think that we all know that, that to some extent, social media uh, for most people and also for ourselves, to some extent is about the feeling of having, like reaching people and and having the numbers go up and the the sort of associated dopamine of connecting and and reaching folks and impacting them.
2: Do you think that, cause Clubhouse, the whole idea is it's real time, right? You're listening mm-hmm. to this conversation happening real time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's something about that that's gonna make it harder for that thing to get big as opposed to, I mean, everyone has a live option, but almost all this stuff, YouTube, TikTok, mm-hmm. et cetera, is, is on demand, asynchronous. Um, do you think that that inherently is something that works better for communication or do you think it, either, either option works? I think that it can open up communication
3: that wouldn't otherwise happen. It can allow people to say things that they maybe otherwise wouldn't say in an era when we're worried about getting taken out of context or uh, something lasting forever and what that will mean 20 years from now when we forgot that we said it. And, and we're wrong and don't even believe the thing that we said anymore. And uh, so so maybe there is, in that sort of Snapchat way, that lower barrier where we don't have to worry about the thing that we're making, the thing that we're mm-hmm. sending. It, it disappears. It's sort of like, you know, Mission Impossible style self-destructs. And so maybe there's, a, there's advantage there. I think that m- my guess is that Clubhouse will eventually have options for storing these things and turning them into some kind of podcast feed. Um, You know, already, like Clubhouse is very, at the moment, very sort of self-structured, which is really fun. That's, That's a really fun thing about it where it's sort of like is building its own culture and people are deciding how to use it. And in that, way that Twitter felt like when like, you know, we fr- like the first hashtags were starting to be used and Twitter was like, I guess that's a feature now. And or at replies, or yeah. also
2: just the way like, you know, when I started using it, it was, you know, a great reporting tool because there were lots of interesting tech mm-hmm. people and VCs right. using yep. it to communicate with each other and you could actually learn things.
3: Yeah, and, yeah. And all of those people have
2: stopped. It's a very, they have stopped communicating publicly on it.
3: It's a very feel of Clubhouse right now where, where and I mean, like it's in the name um, where it has it's like, oh, that person is talking right now? Oh, I, I that's cool. I
0: haven't heard much from them lately.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have other questions for you. I want to take a quick break so we can hear from sponsors. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down.
2: Still here. Um, I'm curious about your perspective of, 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 curious about the way you think YouTube has evolved. We could obviously spend hours talking about that, but someone Mm. who's been successful on YouTube from the beginning and, and someone that YouTube has sort of um, held up as a success. Have you done a brand cast for them in the past? I can't remember. My
3: brother did a brand cast for okay, them, yeah. so that
2: makes sense. So that is yeah. that is the uh, uh, a very, very high production uh, show that YouTube does for advertisers once a year, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and if they are featuring you in a brand cast, that means that they love you, that you are popular, and also that they think you are brand safe and something yes. advertisers yes. Would, would like. Watching them over the last it's now probably three or four years, mm-hmm. struggle with policing content, with not policing content, with yep. figuring out how to, how to communicate that. Um, uh, this week they went and banned Shane Dawson, uh, a YouTube personality of your era. They demonetized. Or they demonetized um, him. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for, for fact checking me, but they punished him for, yeah. for stuff he'd made a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, it's also the, uh, this week they also announced that they had kicked off David Duke who <laughs> was, a, uh, it was a, the grand wizard <laughs> who of ap- the clan. Who
3: apparently had a YouTube <laughs> channel. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, um, uh, so you're obviously still in their good graces. I'm, I'm wondering whether you think <laughs> yeah, not, they have an impossible... not that hard. I'm wondering if uh. you think they have an impossible task uh, monitoring and, and sort of getting their hand around a, a mm-hmm. global platform or whether they're doing a pretty good job or something in the middle. Well, I think that like,
3: YouTube has... This, you know, difficult balancing act of like it could close down and be like in order to make a YouTube vi- channel and or in order to make a YouTube video, there's a there are bigger hoops and like all of this stuff is not stuff that would have happened in a world where video was controlled by you know a few media executives in Hollywood and. Mm-hmm. I think it's a better world for for not having that system. And and so many people got to reach audiences that were underserved. They got to have voices they never could have had. Like overall, the existence of YouTube, I think has been a tremendous thing for video media. And, And in a way it has allowed video to take to take on the path that is much more like what music had in the past, where lots of people make music. And that is a career that many people have. It is often a hobby. It is often something that makes them some money, but not is their full-time job. And video has been able to, be, to become more like music. And that is only because YouTube sort of doesn't have really anything in, in terms of a barrier to upload. Right. Like Make it's a got, video, put it up. It's got content moderation so that like if you upload pornography, that's not going to like, and like algorithms that will identify that stuff. But like the problem that it set up then is like, you know, in all of tech, move fast and break things, like you, you then have this tremendous ability to leverage the, the reach of the platform and also to hack the human decision making apparatus and also like as part of that hack the youtube algorithmic recommendation process to create a sort of downward spiral of of radicalization and hate and um and and they let that just sort of happen for a really long time and like the only thing that stopped that or or even like started to put us to to put the brakes on that was media was was like traditional journalists being like, Holy crap, you guys, do you see what mm-hmm. is happening? And like I think that the world was fundamentally harmed by those decisions and that these people are not were not qualified to have that level of power remain really not qualified and there aren't enough of them to have the amount of power that they have.
2: Wait, wait, which people shouldn't have the power employees at YouTube.
3: Shouldn't have the power
2: to to make shouldn't decisions have. Up-
3: it shouldn't have the amount of power they have in terms of the effect that uh, their content recommendation algorithms can have on society.
2: I'm not uh, saying talk, that they- the, the creation of the algorithm, it's not a matter of Susan Wojcicki pulling a lever here It's saying, we've created the software, it does this. It does the thing. It and, does a thing, and we want it to do this, but it also has these unintended consequences and we hadn't thought through that. Right, and tweaks to that system can have
3: could potentially have really enormous impacts on society. Like if YouTube wanted to have a negative impact on society, it could do that really easily. If it, and, and like the, the fact that we're talking about like, how are you going to change your algorithm to have a more positive impact on society is like that's kind of a dystopian, terrifying thing that we're saying that to, a you know, just a company, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, a, to a capitalist autocratic organization that is run by like 12 people. And yeah, that, in which like, you
2: literally don't have a vote and, yeah. and there's no real control over it.
3: Yeah, and this is like the same problem we're having with with a lot of these social media applications. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt that TikTok will also have this problem and it will be even thornier because of its structure. And like Facebook obviously obviously, um, and
2: continues to be a tremendous. Uh, yes, as, as we're recording infractor this. fracture uh, here companies are now uh, following over themselves to announce that they're not advertising <laughs> on Facebook. And yeah. I'm a little skeptical that that will be sustained, but, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that there's two versions of the YouTube problem and there's probably many more. And one is, One is about how, you know, the face that YouTube wants to present to advertisers and it it generates Mm -hmm. billions and billions of dollars of revenue. And they kind of know how to do it, right? They already have these sort of clean, well-lit spaces where they tell advertisers, they just change the name. It used to be called like Google preferred or something. And now it's called super duper preferred. (laughs) They say like, look, all the videos here, these are good videos. We know who makes them. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about terrible things. We're going to sell you ads that run here. So they know how to at least shine a light on parts of YouTube that they want to promote. And it seems like if they wanted to, they could just say, yeah, YouTube's a giant video platform. This part of it we sell and the rest of it, it's open. And we're not going to run any ads there. Oh, yeah. Um, And and I don't know why they... Don't. Go, I mean, obviously, there'd well, be a severe financial impact, but yes. they also could handle it, and they wouldn't have to keep worrying about some would be, obscene it, or awful thing happening on this random YouTube channel. I I'd think never heard that of. you you may underestimate the number of YouTube channels
3: that are responsible for the majority of YouTube views, um, because I think that
2: the majority of YouTube views. Come from the tail, not from the spike, and I'm I, I'm sure that's the case. On the other hand, I I would I'd I would like to see how the ad dollars break out, right? Because if you're brand X, well, Y, and Z, you probably don't want to be in that tail.
3: Yes, but well, I mean, I, you can say that to those to the to brand X, Y, and Z. But like uh, also a ton of the money that YouTube makes isn't from big brands; it's from small businesses, mm-hmm. just like Facebook. Yep, and. Uh, the other thing is that they want there to be an economic ecosystem for smaller creators so that there are people who are making $10,000 now who might be making $10 million in 10 years, you know, or at least $100,000. Like, that's really their, their sort of bread and butter is the people who are making less than $100,000 a year is like the vast majority of YouTube creators and also a ton of the actual money that the platform makes. And, and I, like, I agree with you, though, that well, what I don't agree with is like that advertising is the thing here, because a lot of these really sort of radical people they don't care about their ad dollars. Right, they're and not getting ad dollars right. anyway. And I was, was going to influencing get,
2: people. Right, I was going to get to category two, which I think is the much thornier one. Right, which yeah. is that YouTube. I think for business reasons, but also for legal reasons. And I think really for philosophical reasons that go back to, you know, Mm -hmm. the beginning of Web 2.0 and all the folks who are making stuff. And you've referenced it several times, the idea that the audience has a better idea of what it wants. And Mm -hmm. it's better off to make a lot of stuff available with, with fewer gatekeepers. And if that involves some odious content, balance it out, it's much yeah. better to have some bad stuff and a lot of other good and interesting stuff. And they yeah. fundamentally believe that. And it's harder for them to express that as clearly as they'd like to now. Well, it's, it's c- going to can getting always, harder, yeah. Right, because you can always say, well, what about this terrible thing on your platform? Mm-hmm. But I think they fundamentally want it to be open and as open as they can. I talked to Susan Wojcicki a year ago at, at the Code Conference and we went back and forth about open and closed. And mm-hmm. when we got off stage, she t- and I've been saying, look, I don't know wh- how you can run this open platform, f- like just realistically. Mm-hmm. And we got off stage and said, you, you don't really think that we shouldn't be an open platform, right? Like she just, yeah, I think with, well, I think she, what she what we saw is what we got. She believes this thing should be open and cannot imagine it another way.
3: Well, I think that what we're running up against right now in the, in this particular moment in history is something I'm thinking a lot about, actually write a lot about in 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 the books that I have written, the novels that I've written about this stuff, is that these platforms are going to have to stop thinking about themselves as just open platforms that, that are just like agnostic and it's like, whatever happens, happens. Because uh, they are not like, the, we, we're dealing with billions of people now on these platforms, being affected by these platforms. And we are not, we are not really their customers as much as we are their citizens like we run our businesses here we live here we spend our social time here they are by their names social places this is like a place we live and there are rules in there are like there are governments who create rules for how to behave and what is allowed in spaces and our government says that uh, the government cannot prevent you from talking in a certain way, but these governments will not be doing that. That is not the the course that they're going to take. They are going to say, like, you you live some of your time here. You can leave. There's no like, there's no saying that you have to be here. And so, like, this is this is your chosen space. And if you want to leave, you can leave. But there are rules, and here are the rules. And are the rules going to be enforced? Uh, exactly precisely with like some kind of like deep understanding for what counts as racism like no because it's going to be it's going to be a little bit subjective and weird and that's going to be like a that's going to be a future man that's going to be a strange place to live in and and they're going to continue to have just
2: i i think they're going to continue to have more and more power and, and i think they're going to have more and more power but that but that sort of demand that that you're that you think they'll be It seems like they desperately want to avoid making the decisions about any of this. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, look, some of this stuff is very difficult. Who can ever decide if this is hate speech or not? We asked many experts, how can Mm -hmm. we possibly decide if this is hate speech? And I'm sure there's many, many gray areas. And sometimes it's really clear cut, like that's odious and you shouldn't have it there. Um, But they... I think, again, both from a practical and also philosophical point of view, they seem to say, this is almost impossible for us to manage, so I think that's changing. We can't. I think it's yeah. changing, and I think it's going to change. And, and I think
3: there are several factors behind why that's changing. I think that, you know, advertisers have levers that they can pull employees have levers that they can pull, creators have levers they can pull, and users have levers they can pull. Also the government of America, Mm -hmm. which they do currently exist inside of, has levers it can pull. And and like all of us as citizens have influence on that process theoretically, though I don't know that, I think that the people who are currently in charge of lawmaking in this country have a really great understanding of how these platforms work. So that's not super, I'm not super enthusiastic about that. We agree. So I, I think that this is happening and internally there are a bunch of things that they do that aren't banning people from platforms you know they demonetize they right. shadow ban they stop putting people in recommendations they and like you know youtube prides itself on this like some stat that i couldn't quote for you of like how much what they call borderline content is being viewed on the platform and like that the percentage of borderline content is going down and so I think that they're doing it. Like, I think that part of the reason that they have to do this is actually because it, uh, it makes the platform, ex- it can make the platform experience worse if YouTube is recommending stuff to you that like doesn't make you happy or like you don't actually enjoy, you just sort of like get really angry about. But I also think that eventually these platforms are gonna be powerful enough that they all have to recognize that, and this is kind of scary, but also like I think a mechanism that will exist that they can't destabilize society so much that they can't do their business. And if, like, if Facebook really does destabilize society, which I think that it does, they're going to have to either be like, okay, I guess we're going to try and make money in a less stable world, or they're going to have to like pull some levers that say, what's the what, like, what do we actually want to do to try and make like, outrage not the primary currency of our platform? Yes. Pretty dystopian thought but I've been yes. thinking a lot about it from a from a sort of science fiction perspective myself.
2: It's it's midsummer 2020, and uh, you were allowed to have dystopian thoughts uh, <laughs> for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one more platform question. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of ties it all back because we started chatting about this podcast because you pinged me on Twitter, and I was writing about uh, Spotify, signing up <laughs> Joe Roken for an exclusive. <laughs> Speaking and you
3: it's such a weird thing to me yep. that like, That like YouTube catches a lot, lots of flack for platforming um, uh, creators who have done really terrible things in the past. Then Uh Spotify gives Joe Rogan hundreds of millions of dollars, like the week before Joe Rogan like has a scandal about basically like laughing that his friend Mm -hmm. has been raping comedians to like let them get on stage or like not like forcing them. Forcing them to have sex with him.
2: Yeah, and, and I know a like, bunch of the Spotify and, people, and, and I, nobody,
3: nobody said anything about Spotify in that conversation.
2: I would love to know how much Spotify has sort of thought through the the risk they were taking on <laughs> Joe Rogan, and <laughs> I, it's, it's a little bit. It's I, I will say because I, I flagged it when they did the deal. I so said this will this will open them up to this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and immediately people said, oh, what do stop calling him controversial? He's just a populist, something, something, something. Yeah, um, and it's sort of hard to describe Joe Rogan to people who don't. Look Listen to him, and yeah. basically, he's a radio DJ with a large following, and 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 will often and do risqué stuff. He's basically
3: stuff. said every single thing because he's made so many four-hour-long podcasts. Right. So you can basically find him saying any anything. And uh, and yeah, I I think that like his his brand is is very like, you know, find and resonate with the average American dude.
2: Mm-hmm. And so so you, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, see, we'll see what happens there. But the, the, the thing that you were responding to was the idea of exclusivity mm-hmm. um, on podcasting. I'm going to read your tweet to you. This is Spotify trying to become the YouTube of podcasts, and I hate about it. The best thing about podcasts is that there is no single giant company doling out audience. So it struck me that a guy who's become very, very successful on YouTube is being critical of someone from trying to emulate the YouTube model (laughs) for podcasting. So I'm wondering if we could just spend a minute or two trying to parse that out. I think
3: that um, obviously I became successful on YouTube in part because I am a good thing for YouTube to point people to, advertisers and users alike. But I have watched a lot of people lose their careers when YouTube decided it didn't want a certain kind of content and that's not like, objectionable content. It's like short content, you know, it's like content under, you know, two minutes long. It just basically doesn't work on the platform anymore. Not because people don't like watching it, but because it doesn't increase like the time on It doesn't help YouTube. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, it, it may be that I'm wrong about this in in a bunch of different ways. It may be that Spotify doesn't even have a chance of doing this because podcasts have too much of a culture of an open ecosystem. Has too much of a culture. Uh, like a lot of the people in podcasting have a, have roots in public media, so they're going you know, to be really wary of that stuff. They're much more sort of grown up than the average YouTuber was when this was happening on YouTube. And it may it may also be that this is good that it like that audience consolidation allows for a lot of growth of the industry that hasn't happened right now because so much of the growth in you know, audience for a podcast is reliant either on word of mouth or just showing up on the front page of Apple, which I think, or mm-hmm. like Apple Podcasts, which is, of course, like very political and a little nepotistic and, you know, th- not a democratic process at all to wh- how you get on that page. And, and maybe there needs to be some kind of algorithmic recommendation system that we just don't have in podcasts. Um, But I just like how I like how weird podcasting is. And I think that that is a a lot of that is down to the decentralized nature of it. And I also just missed that era of the internet where we weren't all reliant on these platforms, and we figured it out for ourselves. I think we're stuck with the
2: platforms. Uh, think? I, I, I think we're very much still in the experimenting uh, phase of podcasting. I mean, everyone is trying to make a serial. Everyone is trying to make a, sure. a Joe Rogan show. Mm-hmm. And it, we'd be better off if there was more experiment, experimentation, but there is plenty of it. Um, mm-hmm. And metrics are still more or less made up and <laughs> yeah. advertising is, 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 it pays my bills, mm-hmm. um, but it's still very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's the continual question. Like, will this industry grow up? People who say that generally want it to become more consolidated. They want to be able to have programmatic advertising, which yep. obviously we're all going to skip past as soon as that happens. Um, <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, it would pay more bills. It would allow more people to make a living. It would allow more people to listen to this stuff. It, mm-hmm. It's going to go both ways. But I, I still very much like the idea that we're experimenting and fumbling around in the dark.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I and I also like. Frankly, I I like the idea that there is, you know, that there are still platforms like Spotify, like TikTok, that can challenge these big players, um, and not just immediately get acquired by them. Because I think that that's you know that's one of the levers that we I think as as a gov- like our government should be pulling against these companies. It, it makes no sense to me that Google and YouTube are the same company. They shouldn't be. I. I think that it probably ultimately has hurt YouTube a lot to be a part of Google. And uh, it, it of, of course, has also helped in in many ways. And like the talent there is extremely powerful for YouTube. But Google's goals and YouTube's goals are not the same and should not be the same.
2: Whoa, 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 whoa. I was going to wrap it up, but now, why, why? (laughs) Um, uh, Before you started testifying for the antitrust uh, subcommittee (laughs) hearing, um, I can understand why you'd want to, as an antitrust reason, you'd want to break up Google and separate YouTube from Google. But why do you think uh, being owned by Google has been bad for YouTube? Um,
3: Because they're trying to see on the face of it they are not focusing on what is interesting and good about YouTube. And so in, they, they create these products that that are like, tr- like try to, to they, they're trying to use YouTube to create Google products that are nothing to do with YouTube. You know, like you see like, this with m- music, um, where you, like Google has tried to over and over again, tried to leverage the success of YouTube into a Spotify competitor and failed yes. and failed and failed. And it hurts us, like
2: it hurts creators a lot. YouTube's focus on music. Why does it hurt, if people are listening, the idea, right, for for YouTube has been, and Google's been like, music videos are a big deal. People are using our uh, YouTube as a de facto music service. Mm-hmm. It seems like we should somehow jam a Spotify or Apple Music in there. It yeah. has never really worked, as you nope. said, but why, do, why is it harmful? It's harmful because
3: the record, the recording industry then uses that as leverage over YouTube. And c- creators, there are, you know, 5 million of us and we all have different opinions the record labels there are three of them and they all have the exact same opinion and they can control youtube in ways that we cannot and they can take tremendous gains and like for, and that that ultimately mean that they have this tremendous power over youtube when i think that i think that youtube should have looked at music videos and said, "Ah, oh, that's a way that like that's a way that people come into the site." But if record labels don't want our our stuff on, like if they if they don't like it, if they don't like the deal we're giving them, then they shouldn't upload their content to the platform, and we'll take it down. Like we'll provide them tools to take down all the content off the platform, not let people upload videos with Lady Gaga music in it. And if they want that world, then. Uh, then fine. And like, but if they like the, the part where we send them billions of dollars, they'll continue to interface with us and we won't give them this ridiculous share of our subscription revenue and i like i think that the the relationship with the music industry has been the thing that has held youtube back so that that's one thing there's also this the google plus integration was tr- a huge fail and google got to talk about how fast google plus grew when really it was just that they had signed every youtube user up for google plus mm-hmm. and that was just such a like it's such a ridiculous corporate bullshit moment that made like everyone lost faith in the platform when that happened and YouTubers rebelled about it. It sucked. Um, And there's like YouTube TV, which makes no sense because like those two things are the opposite of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know why they would ever use that brand for a TV product.
2: They seem confused about what they want to do with that product still. I mean, we're we're recording this that day after they just yanked the price up again and and whatever.
3: Yeah. I I honestly think would have thought, I think it would have been a better thing to do under the Google brand because that, that brand has more trust. Like it's not like a video, like not trust in video, but I think in general it has more trust like Overall, so and and then the big thing is that like YouTube should have had a really clear ability to create a subscription product that benefited creators. And its relationship with record labels prevented it from doing that because it had to send the vast majority of the money that was was from its subscription product to the record labels, and so. See,
2: I always thought they created the subscription product at the behest of the labels. That they never were comfortable selling anything. And The only reason they did it is because that was the way to get the labels off their back. Okay, okay, we'll make a Spotify for you. Just leave us alone. Yeah, we'll sell Ma- this thing. Maybe,
3: may but like, may, but I think from that perspective, like, that's a lack of insight and a lack of like uh, a lack of foresight in like what was going to happen to YouTube, which Patreon showed in spades that like people were going to want to support these creators. And if there was a subscription product at YouTube that creators actually pushed, creators who are, by the way, like talked about in like with the word influencer, like our job is to like help people figure out stuff to buy. If it was actually a product that helped us make more money, YouTube could have created a subscription product that like, because creators would have marketed it, would have, destroyed. Like, it would have been this, uh, like, I think it would have been game-changing for YouTube to be able to have a
2: subscription product that creators would actually talk up because it helped us make more money. It is and, pretty wild that Patreon exists, because Patreon is basically, I mean, there are there are other people who use Patreon, but a lot of them are just YouTubers yeah. who can't make a living on YouTube, so they've created a subscription product.
3: Yeah, and it's, like, and thank God, right? I actually created a company to do the exact same thing that I sold to Patreon, and uh, and, and now I'm on the, their board of advisors, and like, they, like, thank God for Patreon. Like, there's, and it does a tremendous amount of good for YouTube to have that product because it means lots of people can continue making high quality content for relatively small audiences that would not be able to be on the platform if not for Patreon. And like, they they launched this like. Patreon clone type You're, thing, yep. but they take a huge percentage of the money, and I'm just like, why? Why would I like my hardcore audience isn't thinking like, how is it easier to give you money, but like less though? They're thinking, how can I help you?
2: And I and like they'll go to a freaking link, you know. Anyway, I should have started with this. I thought <laughs> you were going to get this peppered up. It's great. You're sweating and screaming, and yeah, you knocked your copy of Watchmen off your off your shelf. <laughs> no, you didn't do that. <laughs> Um, Hank yeah. Green, this was this was delightful. Um, yeah, I want to do it it's again. It's always
3: it's always the last quarter of the interview where where like the real shit things comes get out. loose. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to
2: cut out the entire first part. This will be a <laughs> 10 minute interview. Just Hank Green yeah. yells. Uh, this is great. Thank you very much. Um, should we tell people to go buy beautifully foolish endeavor, or their kids will have already done it?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it is a book for um, people of all ages. It is not a young adult book. Um, and, but I, I don't think it's got too much stuff that is improper for kids like under the age of 15, maybe. And uh, yeah, and it's about like young people having adventures inside of this world and like uh, trying to interface with fame, trying to interface with giant platforms and the uh, the eventual power those platforms might have over society. Science fiction.
2: Oh, it seems relevant somehow. Yeah. Like, yeah. best science fiction. Hank, this is great. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Um, we'll talk to you sometime in the future. Be well. Thanks very much, Peter. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.